0: Our scripture is from Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your salvation visitation.
1: Let's pray. God, we're grateful. I'm grateful to be here this morning. and um, God, we just, uh, we say, want to continue saying in our hearts, sing in our hearts, blessed be the name of the Lord. God, we know that you are a good and loving and sovereign king. God, we know that, um, that, um, that because of who you are, God, we can bless you in good times and bad. But God, I thank you also that you, um, in different ways, you gave and you took away. I thank you that you gave yourself to us, Lord Jesus, and that you've taken away our sins. And so, God, we stand uh, firm on that. We are steadfast on that truth, God, that we... Um, that we are your sons and daughters, uh, that we've been purchased by a, a costly price. And I pray, Lord, that as we take a look at the, um, the last week or so of your life on earth as a uh, being fully human and fully God, I pray that we would be humbled. I pray that we'd be moved to tears and I pray, God, that You would move our tears to uh, action, to live lives on mission uh, for Your glory and for the good of other people, not to get anything, but because we already possess everything in Christ Jesus already. So, God, I'm a neater. I'm a I'm a beggar in need of grace this morning. Just ask You to have Your way with me. I pray, God, for the posture of our hearts. That You would help us just leave behind um, the cares. Um, the thoughts of this morning and yesterday and, and uh, praise spirit of God that you would just um, teach us, instruct us, and transform us for your, for your glory and our good. So in Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen. amen. Man, I was in here just a few minutes before the service. There's like three of you here. And I'm going, all right, word got out that I'm back in the pulpit. Uh, either that or like you don't like potlucks, one, one or the other. And I found out it was uh, trains. Um, crazy. The trays aren't normal that type of day, are they? Or are you guys just all late? Anyways, well, hey, we are uh, we're as Jolene just read, we are we are um, sliding out of the Book of Ecclesiastes. If you're new with us, we've been teaching through the Book of Ecclesiastes for the last nine or ten weeks, and we're going to jump back into that um, about the middle of May, actually. So we're going to we're going to really focus on. Um, uh, Palm Sunday and what was happening in the life of Jesus um, on Palm Sunday and before that. And then after Easter just a, uh, just a, um, a commercial is that we're going to be doing three weeks in a row of reflecting upon uh, Jesus 40 days after His resurrection before He ascended to the Father. I'm really excited about that just to get to uh, really think through and observe uh, what, he, what Jesus had to say to His disciples. So, I've titled this sermon, um, Our Humble King and Our Weeping Judge. And as God often does with me, He, um, he gives me, um, it happens so often that wherever I am in a text in His Word, He oftentimes gives me um, opportunities to really um, like live it out, like hit me right between the eyes. And this happened for me. Um, the last, over the last couple of weeks, I had uh, two encounters with two different men um, that reminded me of our humble king and our weeping judge. That reminded me that God is in control of salvation. That salvation is solely God's work, but that He also um, has given us the privilege and responsibility to participate. It also made me understand that God isn't working. That He doesn't need me. And He doesn't need you. Um, he needs somebody, but he doesn't need uh, you or I in particular. So I came back from vacation a week ago Wednesday and uh, Bonnie had emailed me a message that somebody had called the church phone and wanted to talk to me. And this guy, I'm not going to give you his last name uh, to protect the, protect the guilty, but his name was um, Eric. And um, and I, I heard this guy's name and I go, I only know one Eric with this last name. And it's a guy I went to college with that I haven't seen in 20 years. And um, So um, I texted him last Saturday and said, hey, um, is this the Eric last name that I knew from uh, UNC, the University of No Credit in Greeley, Colorado? He said, yeah, we call it that too. And and, um, I said, great, I'll call you at 1 o'clock. So I talked to him on on Saturday at 1 o'clock. Haven't talked to him over 20 years. Um, We uh, were in college together doing everything um, that you shouldn't do in college together. And then we had parallel careers. I was a financial consultant for 20 years um, in Colorado. He was a financial consultant for 28 years in California. But our paths really never, never crossed. And so I called him and said, "Hey, Eric, um, how you doing? What's up? Like, how do you catch up with somebody after 20, 20 some years?" He said, "Well, he said I've noticed from afar that there's been some changes in your life. I've noticed that you're um, no longer a stockbroker and now you're a pastor." He said, "So I wanted to check in with you on a few things." He said, over the years, um, I've encountered Christians. He says, I'm not a Christian, but he told me right up front, but he said, I'm close. He actually said those words. I'm going, my goodness, Lord, what are you doing here? And so he said, "I've I've had encounters with Christians over the years, and some of the encounters have not been good. They've been with Christians on Sunday who talked a good talk, who proclaimed a good message, but on Monday, he said they would stab me in the back. And then he said, I've met some other Christians that were the real deal. But he said, I just uh, honestly just never had time or a need for Jesus. He said, over the last several years I've had colon cancer. He says, my wife is completely debilitated. He says, I've accomplished everything financially that a man would want to accomplish in this world. He said, "I, I started asking the question, is there more to this life than what I possess right now? And so he called me out of the blue. And he asked that question. And I said, Eric, there is. I said, um, one thing I'll tell you right up front is that by putting your faith and trust in Jesus, it won't necessarily solve your problems. It doesn't mean the colon cancer is not going to come back. It doesn't mean that your wife is going to be healed. It doesn't mean that you won't lose your money. But what it does mean is that you'll have what matters. You'll have peace and reconciliation with a God who created you. For a relationship with himself, and that was about it. We talked for about forty minutes, and he he had he had not been in a in a church in decades, and he had set an appointment up for uh, for this past Friday to meet with the church in his Costa uh, Costa uh, Mesa, California. So I haven't followed up with him yet. So I was just encouraged that the sovereign God, the sovereign Creator, our sovereign Savior is at work. And that He threw me just a little bone that I got to see from afar that He is working and He doesn't need me or any of us. The other example is that there's a man in my life that is very dear to me. And he's a man that is on the um, later side of his life. Statistically speaking he doesn't have much time to live um, from a, um, what, do, what do insurance guys call that, that table? Actu- what is it? Actuary. actuary. I don't think that's it actually. <laughs> that's it, actuary table. Um, so, but you didn't have much time to live. And I had an opportunity. Um, I've always suspected that this man um, who goes to church every Sunday I've always suspected that he doesn't have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. I just suspect that. Things that he's said over the years. So I had an opportunity actually to ask him. I had an opportunity to um, share the gospel with him. And here's what he said to me. He said, he said, Danny, do you mean to tell me that somebody could live their life in an immoral way, doing much harm to other people, lying, stealing, cheating, that at the end of their life they can put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and they'll go to heaven? Then he said, do you mean to tell me that, that me, him, who's lived a moral life, who's um, done everything he could to be fair to people and be honest, that if I don't put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, I'll go to hell? I go, yeah, that's pretty much what I'm saying. He says, I don't buy it. He says, I don't buy it. And um, all's I can do is weep. All's I can do is call him to Christ. I can't save him. In the same way that I didn't save Eric who called. I can't save him. And this, this has been instructed to me because I'm, I'm caught between understanding and knowing that salvation is a work of God alone and that I can't lead... Or make anybody receive Christ, and at the same time of having emotions that actually um, indicate that I have a heart that desires for this man to be saved. And I don't know if you can feel that at all, but that's where we're headed here this morning. Is how do you, how do you believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, and at the same time break over peoples that have yet to bend their, over people that have yet to bend their heart and their need to Christ. So today is Palm Sunday. And on the church calendar it kicks off Holy Week where Christians around the world observe and remember the days leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. And so my prayer for you and I today is that we would have a deeper understanding of the intentionality of Jesus to walk into the eye of the storm so that we would never have to encounter the eye of the storm. And the eye of the storm for Jesus Christ, in the eye of the storm for every human being is the wrath of God. That Jesus um, walked, uh, set his face towards Jerusalem, and he walked um, into a hornet's nest where he knew that he would die and be flogged before he died. And He knew that that all the wrath of, of the Father would be poured out on Him so that anyone who believes in Him would never have to endure that storm. I pray further for a couple of specifics, three of them for us this morning. I pray that we would be humbled by the humility of Christ. Second, in our humility, I pray that we would learn to weep for others. And number three, I pray that our weeping would lead to action. We'd be humbled by the humility of Christ. In our humility, we would weep for others. And our weeping would move us to action. So the setting for today's passage is uh, around 33 AD. 33 years after Jesus was born. And 33 years and some months um, since an angel appeared to Mary. And Luke chapter 1 says this about that event. The angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will, be a gr- he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then shortly after his birth, an angel appeared to some shepherds. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David Christ the Lord. You see, Jesus was born in a royal line. He was destined to become a king. Now 33 years later having lived a perfect and unblemished and life of obscurity he readies himself to be executed in about five days. And before we go further I feel like we need to have a picture of what that culture looked like then. The picture of both the the, uh, religion the Jewish people and of the government of Rome because they were very intertwined. In the days of the Roman Empire, it was one of the mightiest empires that the world has ever seen. When Rome swept through a country, people had two choices, to yield or to die and most people chose to yield. Israel however presented a very unique situation. Caesar had resolved to conquer the world and Israel but Israel laid strategically between Asia Minor, Asia Proper, and Africa. And to move freely between these three um, continents, if you will, Caesar would have to rule Israel, but this would be complicated for Caesar. The Hebrew people were very religious and their nation was defined by their temple practices and their worship of one God. And one God only, Jehovah. Rome acknowledged hundreds of gods. Rome was very calculated and they were very powerful. Yet they recognized that Israel's devotion to Jehovah was not something that could be taken away from them. Praise be to God. So Rome arranged a compromise. Israel could continue to practice their monotheistic religion as long as they obeyed Roman rule and paid their taxes and didn't cause any ruckus. It was a clever arrangement. Rome had persuaded many in Israel that their right to worship God who gave them their national identity was now a privilege granted to them by Caesar. Who by the way could also take it away from them. This left the religious leaders with the, with the charge of maintaining peace. What a horrible situation to be in. To be a religious leader and to keep the church silent. If God's people didn't behave themselves and submit to Caesar, Rome would take away their freedom. This being the case, the religious leaders were very sensitive to anything that could upset this delicate balance and the peaceful yet compromising lives they were living. Let's go back to the book of Luke. Several months before Palm Sunday, Jesus predicted his death three different times. In Luke chapter 9 verses 21 through 22 is the first time. It's right after Peter correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, if you remember that. In verse 21 chapter 9 it says this, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. You're correct, but don't tell anyone. He said the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes by all the religious leaders and be killed and on the third day be raised again. The second time is the end of Luke chapter 9. It says but while they were all marveling at all that Jesus was doing, all the miracles Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand it. And after this second prediction of his coming death, things started getting real. And it says simply in uh, verse 51 of Luke 9, when the days drew near for him to be taken up to die, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Who does that? When it was time for him to die, he ran towards death. Death. This was the turning point in Christ's ministry. It showed Jesus' determination to complete His mission of going to the cross. He set His face towards Jerusalem where His mission of establishing His kingdom would be initiated by His suffering and death. Now I want you to see the end of this passage in in, uh, chapter 9 verses 52-56 through because I think actually if we're honest this is going to expose our hearts a little bit. It exposes mine. He sent messengers ahead of Him. He was in Galilee, headed towards Jerusalem. They had to go through Samaria. And Samaria uh, is a a place that is made up of half-breeds, if I can use that term. Of half-Jewish, half-Gentiles. And they didn't believe in the one true God. They didn't believe in Jehovah. So He sent messengers ahead of them, ahead of Jesus who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, the sons of thunder, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. I love the NASB actually adds. I haven't studied um, why they add it and why it's out of the ESV, but they add for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives but to save them. The Son of Man is not come to destroy but to save. And I want you to see the attitude of the disciples in this passage. They don't understand what's going on. When Jesus and His followers were rejected, they wanted to bring judgment to these pagan believers on the spot. And I, and I fear that's our attitude at times when people don't believe that Jesus is who He said He is. Or worse yet is they don't believe who He is and they follow another God. We, we want to bring judgment on them. Rather than the blessing of salvation. And the third time that He predicts His death is in chapter 18, verses 31 through 33. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. See, we're going up. We're getting closer. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For, for he, speaking in third person now, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, praise be to God, he will raise this time, these several months between Galilee and Jerusalem He genuinely cared for people. Nobody was a project with Jesus. He genuinely cared for people in ways that made people want to know Him and want to follow Him. He healed the sick. He cast out the demons. He healed the blind. He showed a deep compassion for those who were hurting. He even raised Lazarus from the dead however these acts of merciful service were not his main purpose of ministry. And it's not our main purpose of ministry his mission is laid out in Luke 19.10 he came to seek and save the lost. But along the way he saw people that were hurting and he helped them he came to die so that all who believe might live. He chose this path for you and for me. It was no accident. Nobody tricked Him. His journey to the cross was motivated by a love for the people He created. And as He approached Jerusalem it was time for Jesus to go public that He's the Messiah. It is time to stir the hornet's nest. It's time to break the silence that He is in fact the Messiah. The time has come for him to lay down his life, to complete his mission. And on this Palm Sunday, it was about five days before the uh, Passover celebration, that, that particular night. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, was heading right into the place and to the people who wanted him arrested and dead. Let's take a look at our passage today. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where where on entering you'll find a colt, a donkey, tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. For those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and thrown their cloaks on the colt. They helped Jesus up on the donkey and he rode along. And they spread their cloaks on the road. There's something odd about this. There's many things odd about this. Why was Jesus riding on a donkey? Why was Jesus riding on any animal for that fact? They'd been with Jesus for three years and they'd traveled from town to town on foot. They hadn't known Jesus to ride a beast of burden. Why would Jesus want to enter Jerusalem this way? And the reason is to awaken the people that He was not just a good man. He was not just a good man doing good deeds, but that he was in fact their long-awaited kingdom and Messiah from the line of David. Track with me on this. Centuries earlier, Nathan the prophet and good friend of David spoke these words to David, King David, towards the end of David's rule. It's from 2 Samuel 7, 12-13. When your days are fulfilled, Nathan is prophesying to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He will come from your body, your seed, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And fast forward a few years where David on his deathbed confirmed that his son Solomon would be king after him. Let's take a quick peek at 1 Kings 1 33 through 35. And the king said to them, them is David, excuse me, is Nathan and Bathsheba. And King David said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon ride on my mule and bring him down to Gihon. There anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. You see Jesus was riding the same route that Solomon rode to his coronation and riding the same type of animal. This struck a chord with the Jewish people. You see, the people of Israel grew up hearing the stories of King David. They pictured in their minds Solomon riding his father's donkey or colt into Jerusalem as he was received as the Lord's anointed ruler over them. You see, the colt or the mule became a sign or a signal of coronation. And by extension, a symbol of being under the caring protection of God and their enemies. You see, Jesus looked like a king. But not because of his robe, not because of his crown, not because of his scepter, but because of the memory it triggered in his disciples. And to take it further, Jesus didn't just summon thoughts of Solomon as he approached Jerusalem on that fall. He also brought to mind the works of the prophet Zechariah who told the people long after Solomon's reign in 500 years before Jesus was born the following thing the following words this blows me away what are the chances of a prophecy like this coming to fruition Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. You see, most people were following Jesus because he was a good guy. Who doesn't want to follow a person like Jesus who is casting demons out, who's healing the sick, raising people from the dead, feeding people? Who was this man? Many started suspecting that he was the coming king they were waiting for. They they felt compelled to praise him by taking their cloaks off and throwing them on the ground. And those that didn't have cloaks, they were tearing palm branches off. And they were laying them across the path to create a more dignified path to welcome the arrival of the one who might be able to rescue them from Roman oppression. The people shouted the hope of their hearts as he passed. In verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that he had said they had seen saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest you see the jewish people had great insight but they also had great misunderstanding They were correct in saying that Jesus really is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He was the Messiah. He was the son of David. He is the long-awaited ruler of Israel. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But their great misunderstanding was that he would enter Jerusalem and by his mighty works he'd take the throne and make Israel free from the tyranny and oppression of Rome. And they couldn't be more wrong. It wasn't going to be that way. He would take the throne, yes, but it would be through voluntary suffering and death, and then by His victorious resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. He didn't come to defeat our temporary enemies. He came to defeat our mortal enemies, the enemies of sin and Satan and death. He left us in a world where there's plenty of temporal enemies around us. But he's got Satan on a leash. He's conquered the power of death. And sin no longer has power over you. In the past, in Jesus' earthly ministry, before he got to this point, when people began to draw accurate conclusions about his identity, he instructed them not to tell anyone, saying, my time has not come. This day, this Palm Sunday was different. Here the people shouted their praises calling Jesus their king and he said nothing to quiet them. But the religious leaders were not happy about this. This could upset their relationship with Rome and their comfy and compromised lives. So in verse 39 and 40 we see that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you if these followers are silent the very stones would cry out. The religious leaders appealed to Jesus to tell his disciples that he's not their king. Tell them they're wrong. Tell them you've not come to save them. All these religious leaders cared about was was protecting themselves and the great life and understanding they had with the Roman government. And they didn't want Jesus or anybody else to mess it up. So the momentum is building. The writing is on the wall. The religious leaders were already plotting uh, Jesus' arrest and His murder. But Jesus was not going to back down. He boldly and humbly declared that he is in fact worthy to be praised. And if man didn't give it to him, the stones lining the streets and the walls would cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus' mission would be accomplished through suffering and death, not power and judgment. He would conquer the enemies of sin and Satan, not the political enemies of the Jews. His humble and unstoppable mission was and still is one of grace and mercy, not judgment. One day, he'll be about judgment. One day, either when someone dies outside of faith in Jesus Christ or he comes back again, he will judge the living and the dead. There'll be no more grace. There'll be no more mercy. There'll be no more mission. (laughs) Jesus, the humble king, is a judge. He will judge the living and the dead. But right now, He is a weeping judge. He's been hailed the king by his followers and he's also been told to shut up by the Pharisees and to keep the disciples quiet. And now this humble sovereign savior riding on a donkey is cresting the hill before the city and is suddenly moved to tears. Verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city willingly and joyfully set his face towards Jerusalem to fulfill his mission of seeking and saving the lost. And it says here that he wept because the day of visitation of the Messiah and King is upon them and they're missing it. The day of salvation is here and many don't see it. And you know, this day of salvation will last until Jesus comes back again or until somebody dies. Jesus is not weeping because of what's ahead of him. He's weeping because what's ahead for the people of Jerusalem. And it's clear to me that Jesus is weeping not only because of what he knows will happen to the Jewish people in AD 70 when the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, but he is weeping primarily because of the condition of their heart, which will result in eternal separation and suffering because of their hard-hearted belief. He is weeping over the sinful hearts of his executioners. That's all of humanity. Not just the ones that turned him in. Not just the ones that flogged him. Not just the ones who nailed the cross. But he is weeping over all of of his executioners. Everybody from throughout all time who has sinned and has yet to put their faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. He is weeping because of what they are missing. And Jesus, get this, he's not just shedding a tear. He is lamenting It is a convulsive sobbing. It is an intense lamenting that Jesus, the sovereign God who created the universe, who created every human being for a relationship, came to live and to die. He is is five days away from what he came for. And he is weeping for those who have not put their faith in trust in him. This was and is the heart of a new kind of king. It's the heart of God. His body was human, but his heart was divine. This is how Jesus sorrows over hearts that miss their day and the things that make for peace. And what makes for peace is reconciliation. What makes for peace is, is, is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. He is grieved when the pinnacle of His creation rejects a relationship with Him. And the mere fact that Jesus wept here shows the deep emotional state of the Savior as He moves towards Jerusalem. And I want to be careful here, but I'm going to say it anyways. And usually when I say something like that, it's a precursor of something that's not in my notes. But this is. Jesus is not an indifferent Calvinist whose theology is so suffocated that he can't breathe, see, and be moved. And that's not a statement for or against Calvinism. Actually, it's a statement, whatever you believe... Whatever degree of sovereignty you believe God has in salvation, and I believe that God is sovereign over all salvation, that it doesn't excuse not weeping over lost souls. He is weeping over lost people. He is weeping over judgment. He is weeping over coming disaster. And we must not lift our heads up too quickly from this passage lest we miss our Savior's heart. And I want you to ask yourself, I've asked myself this. In second service, you're just fortunate you're here. Because I was a crying, blubbering mess in the first service. Snot was going everywhere. I want you to think and ask yourself about how often, if ever, you've wept over the hearts of people. Jesus' patient, His love, His emotion. They've been so convicting to me. I don't feel any condemnation, but they've been convicting to me. They've been instructive to me. I can be pretty rational. I can be pretty rational and non-emotional in thinking and understanding God's sovereignty and salvation. Then having conversations with this man who I dearly love, who's on the last leg of his life, and he tells me that he doesn't buy it. And I can say, oh, well, God, I trust you, and I do trust God. And I know God is lopsidedly loving, if you remember that from our Micah series. But I want this man to come to Christ. I'm begging Jesus to save him. Jesus paused over the city, and in plain view, he wept. Jesus came not to destroy or to judge, but to save. And can I say this? I don't know if you participated in the 24 hours of prayer, but if you did, you'd know that this church body gets this. Because as I was reading those cards, what I read, what I saw, what I read, what I felt was the weeping behind the pens that wrote it. There's a lot of you that are lamenting over pain of loved ones. whether it be cancer? whether it be divorce? And there was major lamenting over the souls of lost ones. So church family, can I encourage us to continue to stand firm on the sovereignty of God and salvation, but with warm hearts. With hearts that are moved to tears for people that are far from Jesus Christ. And I want to close with this. I want to close with there's at least three ways that Jesus' humility should move us. And I'm going to give you three of them. And I pray that in these three I pray that we together as a body become more like Jesus in all three of these. Number one, I pray that we be humbled by the humility of Christ. What do I mean by that? To have an understanding, to understand the gravity that you were dead and lost and running in the other direction when God, the hound of heaven grabbed a hold of you. That He, he didn't save nice people. There's a lot of nice people in here. But he didn't save you because, because your, your good deeds um, outweighed your bad deeds. He saved you because he wanted a relationship with you. My prayer first is that we would be humbled by the humility of Christ. That Christ humbled himself and became obedient. Obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross for you and for me. And number two, in our humility we would weep. Last week in Pastors Leadership Institute we were looking at this passage in 2 Corinthians, oh actually that's that's down lower. Um, Piper says this, um, Jesus' humility is tender moved tenderly moved. He feels the sorrow of the situation. Piper says this: he cared about all suffering. Jesus cared about all suffering. On His way when He set His face to Jerusalem, along the way He sees somebody sick, He sees somebody hungry, He sees somebody dead. He takes care of it. He cared about all suffering but He especially cared about eternal suffering. And this doesn't mean that His sovereign plan has wrecked, was wrecked on the rocks of human rebellion. It means that Jesus is more emotionally complex than we can think. So I want to make an appeal to you on this uh, uh, weeping part. I want to uh, appeal to you that you pray to God that He would give you tears. If you can honestly say that you have not prayed for the salvation of somebody else uh, with tears in your eyes and haven't begged God for salvation, my prayer for you is that in in me that we would pray that God would break us and give us tears for the lost. If we can sing the song that we sang, that, that God brought salvation to the world. Salvation has come to the world and it is finished raising our hands as i did and i'm so thankful that god in his kindness would save me a rebel and that i can confidently say because jesus said that it is finished but if those words don't move me to tears for other people i've missed the gospel Because the gospel isn't just for me. It is very much for me and very much for you to, to soak in and to bathe in and to praise God for. But if it doesn't move us to weeping for the lost, we've missed it. Last, our weeping would move us to action. Here's the PLI part. Last week at PLI we took a look at 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1. It says this, And this is for every one of us who have put our faith in Jesus, not just professionals. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. I love what the Christian Standard Version says. It says we do not give up. We do not give up. Jesus' humility was self-denying. The condition of the hearts of mankind drove him to tears and moved him intentionally towards action. His action was suffering and death. Our suffering death isn't going to save anybody, but I pray that our weeping would move us to action, that we would be so uh, broken for people's, um, the condition of the heart that we would be moved to share the gospel with them. Jesus had compassion for those with temporal suffering, and so should we. But Jesus' mission and compassion was ultimately directed to those who were like sheep without a shepherd. To those who have yet to believe and repent. His mission was to seek and save the lost. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He's still in the business of saving people like Eric. But His chosen method is you and I. You can't save anybody but He's giving you the privilege and the responsibility to love him so much and love peop- other people so much that we would shine and share the love of Jesus Christ. the baton has been handed to the church. So who are you praying for and how are you praying? Who are you weeping over that God may want to share the, want you to share the love of Christ with? Let's pray. God we bless you, Um, we thank you that you are on the move those are the words that came to me when I got that call from Eric those are the words that came to me when um, when the man that I love uh, rejected your gospel I took great comfort in knowing that the hound of heaven is on the loose and that Satan is on a leash and I pray, God, that you would bring to mind um, um, on a regular basis um, um, our neighbors. Those whom um, you've put us um, in proximity to. I pray, God, that you would bring those people to mind often um, in our homes, in our community groups, in our discussions. and That you would move us to a deep sorrow and compassion for the state of their heart, for those that have yet to come to know you. And, God, I pray that we would spur one another on to action, that our tears would spill over into action. And, God, I pray further that we wouldn't see people as a project. I pray that we would see them as you saw them, as you crested the hill of Jerusalem and wept over the lost souls. So, God, anything, any any good that comes out of um, any one of us individually or collectively together out of this ministry called Windsor Community Church, God, um, anything good, God, we'll give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close our service together.